Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I used to work at a Montessori preschool and was amazed at the differences in the children. Some were calm, some were hyper, some were loud, some were quiet. But there was this one child that I felt that something more was going on. He would throw a tantrum every time he put his jacket on. Anytime an ambulance came by, he couldn't tolerate the noise. He was constantly distracted. He couldn't sit through story time and would often be running from toy to toy. He was always crashing into walls and people, and he was putting inedible things like rocks and paint into his mouth. He was clumsy and would have violent meltdowns. I thought to myself, does he have ADHD? Or a sensory processing challenge? Or was it autism? Or was he just a normal four-year-old kid? Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to help you and your family live smarter and healthier lives. Today we're talking about ADHD and sensory challenges. We'll discuss how to know if your child needs an assessment, what to do if you have a positive assessment, and what resources are available to you. Joining us today are Dr. Stephanie Hines, Medical Director of the Center of Human Development, and Dr. Lori Warner, Director of the Center of Human Development and the Ted Lindsay Foundation Hope Center at Beaumont Children's. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. 6.4 million American children have been diagnosed with ADHD. The CDC says about 11% of American children ages 4 to 17 have this attention disorder. Males are more likely than females, and approximately 1 out of 20 kids may deal with symptoms of sensory challenges on a daily basis. So Dr. Hines and Dr. Warner, uh, the story I told you about the child that I had um, at the Montessori, what are your thoughts about that? Well, that's a very common scenario. We, We hear these stories a lot. And all the things that you just mentioned, ADHD, autism, is it just normal? Is it some sensory processing challenges? Um, Are all possibilities, and they're all things that we think about. So it's a really common scenario. What is exactly ADHD? So ADHD is um, a disorder, but it's really important to keep in mind that it's not a disorder we can test for by a medical test. In other words, we can't do a blood test. I can't, we can't diagnose it by going through an MRI machine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a disorder that's based on a cluster of symptoms. So it's a cluster of, of symptoms that are developmentally inappropriate for that child's mental age. Okay, so what are some of those symptoms? So some of those symptoms are difficulties concentrating, staying on task, being distractible, Um, difficulties sustaining effort to complete an activity, so sustained mental effort. Some would argue, though, that, I mean, every four-year-old or three-year-old might have an attention problem. Like, when do you start considering it to be a problem? So when those problems start interfering, like, in the preschool setting or in the classroom, so the younger a child is, the more it's going to be an issue with hyperactivity, Mm -hmm. difficulty sitting still, like sitting still at story time and also some impulsivity. So a younger child is going to have difficulties with physical impulsivity. So speaking out of turn, yelling when they yelling out, yelling out an answer when they shouldn't be, or, or even even hitting. I mean, we tend to see those issues. 
So I've had patients that come into the clinic and, and parents who are very concerned. And normally we, we send them home with a questionnaire to be filled out by the teacher and then yeah. also the parent. So uh, are those questionnaires valid? And how do you, if you have a series of symptoms, how do we make sure there's not a bias either from the teacher or the parent? Because I think sometimes yeah. a lot of parents are in denial mm-hmm. of the diagnosis. Right. And so, right. um, for example, I had a patient that I, w- I saw quite regularly. And during the office visit, she was all over the place. You yeah. know, she's crinkling the paper. She's uh, you know at the sink, turning the water on. And she was a really cute, fun kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when the mother was filling out the questionnaire, the question was, you know, does she have trouble focusing or staying still? And it was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No? Really? <laughs> so, I mean, how, how, do, how, do, how are those evaluations done, I guess? Well, they're all th- through rating scales. Again, that's really all that we really have are, are rating scales, getting observations and information from all the people that interact with that child. So it could be the teachers, the preschool teachers, the babysitters. I've even had gymnastic coaches fill out rating scales for me so I can get a better sense as to what's happening in different settings. So where the, the task demands, where the demands are the greatest for a child tends to be in a classroom setting. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. Um, The scales, the information that you're getting on those rating scales are biased according to whoever's filling them out. So sometimes we see a third grade teacher who is absolutely certain that that child has ADHD because her son has ADHD and she knows exactly what it looks like. So her scale is going to look really positive. It's going to be full of ADHD symptoms. Do you think it's helpful, for example, if you had a child that was at home and had the parent fill it out. Maybe they had a babysitter or mm-hmm. um, a daycare center that they went to, and then also a preschool, having multiple yep. people fill the it out. The more data you can get, the better. So I like to get it from all of those sometimes grandparents. If they look, you know, if they're watching the child mm-hmm. after school, um, even um, people who teach like catechism, I've had uh-huh. those individuals do it before. Um, the more data you can get, the better, because really this is a diagnosis that should be seen in more than one setting. Okay. Um, The other question I had is that it seems that most children start exhibiting symptoms around, you know, three to six, three Mm -hmm. years old, up to six years old. Um, But then the diagnosis is on average at age seven. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for a delay in diagnosis? Yeah, mostly because ADHD presents differently at different ages. So there's different subtypes of ADHD. There's three different subtypes. So the one that you're seeing in the, the preschoolers, the three to five-year-old mm-hmm. group, is more than likely the hyperactive impulsive. Those mm-hmm. are the children that are running around the room, turning on the water, uh-huh. crinkling up the paper, yeah. doing all those things that you just mentioned. Um, it tends to be a little bit more boys. Uh, it tends to be in the preschool saying these are the, the teacher, the preschool teachers that are kind of getting frustrated and may even be quote, kicking out these kids out of the preschool or because them they're time out putting and... them in timeout. Um, and we see increasingly, you know, three and four, five-year-old, more boys getting kicked out of preschool, being suspended. Okay. But as you get older, what happens is that more of the inattentive subtype becomes a little bit more, more prevalent. So when the task demands at school become greater, then we tend to see that subtype pop up. So it's not so much more of a delay in diagnosis as it's the way it presents over time. And Dr. Hines, the third subset of ADHD? 
The third subset is the inattentive subtype. So this is what we tend to see not in the preschoolers, but more in the late elementary and middle schoolers and even up into high school. Mm. This is where we tend to see more girls coming to us. These are the, the individuals that have problems focusing, um, remaining, not getting their work done, remembering to turn their work in, organization is a big issue, um, just not daydreaming during class. Um, those are what we tend to see in the, the inattentive subtype. So those kids who, like say teenagers, if you start noticing that in your teenager, how do you know if that's just not hormonal changes and puberty right. versus an actual well, problem? Yeah, that can be kind of hard. That's where going back into history is helpful because technically those those symptoms should have been there around age 12 or a little bit younger. So if all of a sudden it's just popping up in high school, mm-hmm. you know, at age 15, 16, I'm really going to explore that a little bit more because okay. I'm. it should have really been there before that. Okay, so there should yeah. have been some signs of uh, maybe even a different type earlier. Right, okay. right. And then what is the difference between ADD, um, attention deficit disorder, and ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? So really, there's not a difference. Um, Years ago, decades ago, we used to make the distinction whether or not there was hyperactivity associated with it. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't have the hyperactivity and you just had the problems focusing and concentrating, you had ADD. If you had the hyperactivity in there and the impulsivity, you were ADHD. You had ADHD. But now the way we separate it out, it's all ADHD, but there's different subtypes. Okay. So that inattentive subtype doesn't have the hyperactivity. It's a point that's really confusing for some parents. And I think it sometimes delays the diagnosis too. Yeah. You know, and I feel really sorry for many of these kids because they're just str- yeah. struggling to the normal right. teenage or, you know, kid yep. things that they're mm-hmm. doing with bullying and all that other stuff. And it's not that kids are... Um, it, it, you know, they don't want to be having this extra difficulty. And I feel right. like a lot of times, um, you know, they get reprimanded in school and, right. and then the parents are frustrated with them. And it's, it's, it's really yeah. tough. But I think that if you understand the diagnosis and the this, this situation, what, what causes it and how it works and that right. it can be treated, there could be a lot more empathy for these yeah. kids and more support uh, for them to be successful. Right. And I have parents coming to me telling me, I don't want it to reprimand him if it's outside of his control. Right. And that's really key. And sometimes parents struggle with that. How much of it is they're not, the, my kids are not wanting to do it just because they don't want to do it. Or how, how much of it is they can't. You yes. know, they need those directions repeated four times before they finally get it. So do you think it's helpful for parents to also be treated in the sense of going for therapy on how to raise yeah. kids with ADHD? Yeah, that's big. So it kind of helps you um, ha- right. have some better ways of talking to your children right. so that it's not always a, a heightened situation. Right. Okay. And so if you had a child who seemed pretty well behaved at home, mm-hmm. um, but was out of turn at school and was getting sent home or getting notes and things, um, is that something that you'd be concerned about? Or you think something else is going on at that point, since it's not the same in different environments? Yeah, so I would be exploring that I'd be asking questions. So I, I spend a lot of my time kind of playing detective, uh-huh. trying to figure out, well, what do these symptoms look like? What are the, you know, what are the behaviors? What are you concerned about? What does it look like at home? What does it look like at school? So if you're just seeing it at school, then I'm starting to think down another pathway, I'm starting to think, well, maybe there's some learning challenges, maybe there's some learning issues, maybe there's a learning disability. And that's the reason you're seeing it just at school and not anywhere else. So let's say you do get the diagnosis of ADHD 
And at this point, what are the treatments that are available? And are there any other treatments than medication? There are other treatments besides medication. That's what a lot of parents want to start with are the the big term, non-pharmacological, non-medication mm-hmm. uh, treatments. They want to sometimes go down that pathway first, which is totally fine. There's a lot of behavioral modifications we can put into place, accommodations, mm-hmm. uh, both at school and at home. But what the research shows us is what tends to give us the best results in the shortest amount of time is medication. The thing about medication, I think a lot of people are worried about the side effects of medication. Right. And yeah. Why is it important to take medication vacations, for example, um, only taking the medication during the school week and not mm-hmm. on the weekends or taking the summer off? Yep. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I tell parents that ADHD is much like diabetes. So mm-hmm. it doesn't just start and stop with the school day. Okay. It's there all the time. So, but with that in mind, I tell parents that this, this, these medications that we use to treat are very, very safe. Some of them have been around for 50 years. Very safe. And you can start and stop them anytime. So if you just want to treat Monday through Friday, you can. But keep in mind, this is like diabetes. It's there all the time. So if the medication also helps you with your family functioning, you find that you're yelling at Johnny less because he's, you know, now he's picking up his clothes and you don't have to tell him 13 times to do so. And it's just making your family function better. It might be worthwhile to do the, to take the medication on weekends as well. If I find a child's having problems gaining weight, which by the way, is the most common side effect of the medication. Mm-hmm. It's appetite yeah. suppression. Appetite suppression is by far and away the biggest, the biggest side effect from the medication. And, you know, Johnny may have problems gaining weight. And by the way, these medications, <laughs> the side effect of appetite suppression tends to have the biggest effect on kid, the very kids that you don't want losing weight. Okay. okay? Yeah. They're the kids that go from eating three chicken nuggets down to two. Okay. okay, it's never the overweight kids. Yes. The overweight kids just sit at the table longer and eat more. Um, so the appetite suppression is the biggest thing. If you're concerned about weight loss, you can take some medication breaks. We call them drug holidays. Uh-huh. Um, but again, you want to be careful about that too. I always ask a parent, what are your plans for the summer? Is Johnny going to be going to summer camp? See so If he doesn't take his medication, will he get kicked out? You know, that's going to throw a wrench in the whole summer plans. What do we now do with Johnny? So you have to kind of play it by ear and look at the symptoms. But it's these are all medications that can be safely stopped for a period of time. I think most people don't realize how safe and effective stimulant medication truly is, especially if it's used properly and under the proper proper medical supervision. Right, right. So along the lines of ADHD, um, can you outgrow ADHD? That's a good question, boy. Um, You know, 20 years ago, when I kind of got into this field, I used to tell parents that there was a good chance, up to 50%, that your child would outgrow it. Um, but what we're realizing and what the data is showing us is that we, we probably don't outgrow it. But what can happen over time is the hyperactivity kind of burns itself out. Hmm. So you usually don't see adults kind of running around the room. Um, Instead, you might see adults who are doodling, who are bouncing their leg up and down. Um, So we still do see these symptoms into adulthood. What also happens, though, too, is that as as you kind of grow up with this disorder, you kind of learn to compensate, and you kind of realize that maybe you don't need to take medication all the time. 
How much does brain development really have to do with this? Because you know, when when yeah. children are younger, their brains are not fully developed, right. their frontal right. cortex, etc. So they have impulsivity mm-hmm. control issues. Mm-hmm. And then as you grow up, you may have that more developed, right? Right. right. So the the imaging studies are showing us that the frontal lobe isn't even completely developed until about age thirty. Okay. Yeah. So you're still you're still seeing some of this. So people with ADHD just have that plus. Okay, they've got those issues plus. So you can imagine that we're learning that that adults, even into 50s, 60s, still need the medication to function. Yes, I'm seeing more and more patients who are adults that yep. have not, they said they were diagnosed as kids, mm-hmm. but their parents didn't want them to take medication, or at the time it wasn't as uh, as acceptable to take medication, right. and now they're coming, requesting the medication. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's just a lot of stigma around it, I think, I, for some reason, about whether or not you should be on medication, and then adults coming in asking for medication, there's mm-hmm. a lot of skepticism mm-hmm. from healthcare providers at times on right. whether it's really needed or not. Right. Um, so it, it's interesting to hear that that it does still can still exist. Mm-hmm. But I, I also think the thing is there, there's many very high functioning people who have ADHD mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily a death sentence diagnosis. A lot no. of parents are so concerned, oh, my child has this, they're not going to do well in school. And um, I think I was reading that Justin Timberlake uh, had <laughs> ADHD and uh, he said it was a challenge, yeah. but obviously it really helped him in his creativity and his career and mm-hmm. was able to do very well. Yep. I have a question also regarding the stigma on ADHD. Are you seeing that getting worse or better? Um, I think it's highly variable. I I really do. I see some parents that are relating to their child because they too may have ADHD that has not been diagnosed, Mm -hmm. and they just don't want their child to go through the same struggles. They know what it was like to get through school. And so... They want to get. They want to come to the bottom of it. They want to figure out what's going on. And then there's others that are, you know, this this is something that they they cry about and they grieve when they get that di- this diagnosis for their child. It's it's really variable. I think. Yeah, I think it's becoming less stigmatizing with time. Um, and hopefully, awareness will increase that as well. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. my friend's son didn't start eating solids until he was 15 months of age. And after, and that was only after months of feeding therapy. So he started feeding therapy at nine months because he just wasn't gaining weight and he wasn't eating. And that's when my friend first learned about sensory issues. Um, and so he was evaluated by a developmental pediatrician around uh, 20 months of age to rule out autism because the frequent tantrums and the aggressive behavior that he was having was long lasting. And so there was a concern about that. Um, but he did uh, feeding therapy and OT till about age three, and they saw tremendous improvements um, because of the early intervention. So my question is these sensory issues. So with this, with my friend's child, the sensory issue was mostly with food, and um, he couldn't even stand being around the food. He would throw it off his plate. So Dr. Warner, what are the most common sensory issues that we are seeing in children today, and do children get better with it? Yeah, um, the example that you gave in that story in the beginning was really very typical of what we see. A lot of feeding issues. We actually also see a lot of toileting issues because that's Mm. another sensory issue, right? So we have kids who are very uncomfortable with different sensations, whether it's related to their feeding or related to elimination, and we see a lot of behavioral outcomes because of that. So what I really liked about your story at the beginning and then this story is it it explains that the sensory issues aren't just happening in isolation. They're affecting the child, they're affecting the family and the functioning, and they can be affecting their education. 
So we do see a lot of issues with textures, whether it's crunchy things or sort of slimy things or goopy things and sticky things. Mm -hmm. We see it with kids who are what we call tactile sensitivities, meaning they don't want to, if you've ever seen the kids who don't want to step in the grass barefoot or they don't like the sand at the beach Mm -hmm. on their feet. Um, Kids who, and I should say also kids can be what we call sensory seeking or sensory kind of defensive or avoidant, meaning that, and this can occur in the same kid, by the way, (laughs) with different things. So some kids, right. So some kids might be very um, uncomfortable with loud noises, sirens going off, Mm -hmm. um, fire truck, that type of thing, alarms, but they might also be very um, seeking of pushing into you, bouncing into you, squishing themselves under things. And then at the same time, they might not like certain textures. They might not want the sticky foods or the grass. Um, and so, and other kids may spend a lot of time engaged in behaviors that seem very sensitive, uh, very sensory friendly, like sifting the sand or touching things a lot. Um, and so we really can see a wide variety of different types of concerns. And so my point of view as a psychologist in working with the families and a behavior therapist is figuring out how is this functioning in their lives. So that example you gave at the beginning, that little guy is having a horrible time. And we need to help the family figure out why. Um, And we need to support that family because if, if they don't get help, Think of every mealtime for the kids who don't want to eat. It's incredibly stressful and emotional. The siblings are affected. The parents are affected. Um, In school, kids are grabbing things and breaking things. And like Dr. Hines said, they're getting kicked out. Well, what's going to happen when you keep getting kicked out of preschools? How are you going to learn to handle these things? Yeah, so let's talk about Mm -hmm. that a little bit. How do you avoid your child being labeled the bad kid? Um, Because I feel like the children that are suffering from these issues, they're, they're disruptive. Um, you know, I have, I have an example, like uh, my, another friend's child, uh, we were driving home from an event and there was snow all piled up on the, on the lawn, but the driveway's completely clear. Everything else was clear. We, she gets out of the car and she immediately runs into the snow, jumps into the snowbank, and everyone's like, what are you doing? And she just looks like, I don't know why I just did that. <laughs> Um, and and you were kind of like, okay. And then her mom was like, she keeps getting in trouble in school because she keeps doing that. She won't stand in line. So how do you avoid that labeling? That is a tough one because like you said, nobody wants their child to be quote, the bad kid or the problem. And to be fair to teachers and other parents and caregivers, nobody wants to stigmatize that child. But at the same time, these behaviors are unpredictable often um, inappropriate and inconvenient, right? Maybe she's wearing regular clothes and she just got herself covered in snow. Um, And it it can be very hard for the kids themselves because they like your example. It's almost like, I don't even know why I did that. I know better. So with ADHD and some of these other impulse control situations in the therapeutic end, we really try to help people understand that it's often a, um, I know what to do, but I don't Mm -hmm. always... I'm not always able to access that in the moment. So the impulsivity is not that I don't know what to do, but it's in this moment I'm not making the choice the way that I would if I stopped and thought about it. So what are the best ways to handle these sensory challenges, and are there any treatments that can be done? Lots of things can be done. Um, And I think back quickly to the question of how to help them not get stigmatized and labeled, it's that early intervention that you talked about, Mm -hmm. making sure that we're working as partners with all of the healthcare providers and all of the educators in our kids' lives, um, and really sending up an understanding that this isn't intentional because people often 
attribute it to an intention that the kid's trying to get attention or trying to get in trouble um, or that they don't like something and they might not be. Um, so to your question of how to handle these things, it's very individualized. And that early assessment and early intervention is going to be the key. As soon as we know there's an issue, getting to the right people at the mm-hmm. right time. Right. So Dr. Hines and her team are sort of, like we said, the detectives. They're the ones who are going to help you sort through. Um, it could be your family physician to start, your pediatrician or your family mm-hmm. medicine provider. And then you may go to a specialist. You may go to someone like Dr. Mm-hmm. Hines, developmental behavioral peds. You might go to a psychologist. You might see different providers to kind of rule out different types of issues. But then once it's discovered, what is it that can be done? So um, like occupational therapy or like what are are the tactics that are being done to help? Um, Because I understand that you go to many specialists to get the diagnosis, but Mm -hmm. then once you have the diagnosis, what do you do? Right. And again, that's going to depend on the specific child. So in some of this one instance with feeding, they may need to go to a speech therapist or an occupational therapist trained in handling feeding disorders Mm -hmm. and teach the child and the parent how to work with it. Um, Depending on what the issue is, you want to get into a therapeutic program. And the the basis of all the good evidence-based behavioral programs that we know of therapeutically that work well, it's a concept of sensitization and getting the child to to understand if it's something that I don't like the example of. I'll give you an example. We had a little guy who couldn't handle the sound of silverware being mm-hmm. um, put together and sorted. So every time the dishwasher was emptied, it was a nightmare. He'd run screaming. Yeah. He'd try to stop his mom from touching the silverware. And so we actually, in a therapeutic environment, brought silverware in and practiced but in a what we call sort of a, um, a habituation or a shaping, like we started with just a little bit of noise, and yeah. we got to the point where he could start sorting the silverware himself. And pretty soon, we're jangling the silverware all over the place, and he's so fine. Like a desensitization. It's a desensitization, exactly. And that's the you know we have to think about like Dr. Hines talked about accommodations. There are some situations where we have to accommodate. So. Um, Anybody can have sensory sensitivities. I have some. I don't like really loud sounds. I have a quick startle reflex. Um, So if I know that a fire engine's coming or a train's coming, I might just kind of cover my ears a little. Um, When my daughter was younger, she kind of had to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are ways that we can accommodate things, um, but we also want to watch that the accommodations aren't impacting function. So my example of that is if you're sensitive to sounds, you can't walk around with your hands over your ears all the time. We have to come up with ways to treat it. So it's going to be a behavioral approach of getting used to a lot of different things. So Dr. Hines, what are some factors that can increase someone's risk of having sensory um, issues or ADHD? Well, for ADHD, the, the, the ones at the top of my list are always genetics. So if there's a family history of ADHD, that child is on my radar screen. Um, there are some other factors that also kind of play into ADHD. Prematurity, we know, is one of them. Um, being exposed prenatally to, to substances can also be as well. Traumatic brain injuries can lead to ADHD-type symptoms. Um, so there's, there's a number of things, but by far and away, the biggest thing on my radar screen is genetics and hereditary. What about diet? So diet, um, there's been a lot of studies looking at that uh, mm-hmm. over decades. Um, and there's not been anything really good that really leads in one direction or the other mm-hmm. in terms of, however, what I do tell parents that if they tell me, if they say, you know, every time my kid goes to a birthday party and he eats the concentrated sugar, he has that cupcake, he's wild, then I'll say, well, it's 
probably best to kind of stay away from that. If they notice that red dye does it, okay, stay away from red dye. But that's your child. Yeah. That's not the whole population of ADHD. Right. Um, and then the one other thing I wanted to bring up is that sensory challenges and ADHD often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest worry of many parents are, does my child have autism? Mm-hmm. And I know the focus of today's podcast is not really autism. Um, we can talk about that at a later time. But I just wanted to address that for how common is it to have autism with ADHD or sensory challenges and vice versa? So the sensory challenges, I kind of like to think of it, all of these questions, sort of like a Venn diagram. So if you think of these overlapping circles, you can have someone who has ADHD and who actually doesn't have a whole lot of sensory issues. You can have someone who has autism and doesn't necessarily have a lot of sensory issues. Mm -hmm. And you can have someone who has sensory issues but doesn't have autism or ADHD. And then if you picture the center of these three overlapping circles, you could have somebody who has all three. Um, And we actually know that there's a a fair number, we don't know the total number, but there's a fair number of children who are diagnosed with autism who also have an ADHD diagnosis. And we actually have a student right now working with us who's looking at that there, there can be a delay in diagnosis. So if a child has an ADHD diagnosis and they also actually have autism, that autism diagnosis is often delayed by several years because of the fact that the type of autism that they have is the type that looks more like ADHD and they may actually have ADHD as well. Hmm. Um, And so they don't have maybe some of the other symptoms that we look at. Um, The question of the sensory sensitivities is that is something that can happen in both diagnoses, but it's actually not required of either. So you could have you could have definitely sensory issues. Um, the way that you want to rule that out is really in looking at the social connectedness of the child. So kids with ADHD are often very socially motivated and interested in being with other kids. It's just that they're impulsive and they're having trouble knowing what to do. Kids with autism are often more aloof or unsure what to do. So mm-hmm. it's, we're kind of looking at that social connection and social motivation to tell the difference. Okay. So what are some resources for parents who are worrying about um, ADHD or uh, sensory uh, issues? So the website out of the National Institutes of Mental Health, uh, NIMH, has some excellent resources, as does the American Academy of Pediatrics, aap.org. There are many, many local chapters of CHAD. It's children and adults with ADHD. CHAD is C-H-A-D? A-D-D, yes. Uh And there I tell parents, I frequently steer parents to go there, especially Uh if we've made the diagnosis, because there you will get to interact with and talk to others who have actually walked this walk. Okay, that's great. I've not walked the walk. So sometimes you need to talk to other people who have done it, who have been through it. Um, So those are are places where I steer parents um, for help once they've kind of gotten the diagnosis. And I think that's really key is to get the diagnosis first so you know what path you're going on. Okay. And then go down the right path. So Dr. Hines and Dr. Warner, looks like we're out of time. Uh, wow. Thanks so much Went for fast. your <laughs> insights and uh, helping our listeners understand a little bit more about ADHD and sensory challenges. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Don't forget, podcast listeners, we're working on future Beaumont House Call podcasts. We're going to talk about headaches and, oh, unmentionables. We also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. In the future, we'll be entering our mailbag. Till the next time, thanks for joining us on the Beaumont House Call. We leave you today with this healthy thought. If deep down inside, you're concerned that something isn't feeling right about your child, and you try to ignore it, or you don't want to admit it, 
or you're making up excuses, it's really not serving your child. Look for signs of ADHD and sensory issues that we discussed today. If you have a suspicion, talk to your doctor about your child getting tested. And you know that there are treatments out there that can help your child excel and not be labeled as a bad kid. ADHD and sensory challenges are treatable. With proper attention, you can set your child on a trajectory for success that he or she so deserves. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.